All right, well, let's turn our attention to today's teaching. Uh, There was a, a group of construction workers who were putting up a new building in the city of Pompeii. And maybe if you've heard the, the term, the city Pompeii, you kind of know there's some history there. But this, this construction crew was putting a foundation for this building when they unearthed a body. Uh, it, they unearthed the body of a woman who was fleeing from the eruption from Mount Vesuvius. And they knew she was fleeing because of her position. She had been caught up by the rain of hot ashes. And on examination of of her body, they noticed that she was clinging on to something. And when they looked further, they noticed that she was clinging on to jewels. And that those jewels were actually in pristine condition. And isn't it crazy? Like, that's just to me some sort of an analogy for life. Is that there are lots of things that we cling to on this world, but death steals them all. That, and so this is the bottom line in our life. That, that the worldly treasures are not a wise investment because you can't take them with you. Jim Elliott, who was a missionary in the year 1956, he went to the country of Ecuador. And when he was in Ecuador, he was killed by a native tribe of people he was trying to reach. But in Elliott's journal, he understood this reality. He knew of this principle when he wrote this. He said, a person is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. It is not foolish to give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. These words echo the Savior. When Jesus spoke in Mark 8, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? And today we are going to begin a critical look at this question. Does God really care how I handle and value my possessions, and my money? Does he really care? And the resounding answer that we find in Scripture is yes. Yes, he does. Jesus speaks a lot about money and possessions. In fact, 16 of his 38 parables deal with money and possessions. One out of every 10 verses in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of Jesus' life are about money and possessions. That's 288 verses. In your Bibles there are somewhere around 500 verses about prayer. There are a little less than 500 verses on faith. But yet there are over 2,000 verses that talk about money and possession and stewardship. So why is that? Is the Lord just trying to be in our pocketbook? Is he just trying to create a reality where people who who are religious leaders have health, wealth, and prosperity because they're teaching people to give money to them? Or is there something deeper? There's something deeper. God knows this, that how you handle your money and your possessions will serve as a thermostat to your experience with God. And they will also show the world around you who the God you say you believe in is. Nothing on this earth can interfere with spiritual growth and maturity as money and possessions do. Why? Why do they do that? Well, because they have this ability to become a pseudo-savior for us while we're here on earth that leads us away from a life with God and towards a life of self-love, towards ourselves. There isn't a tool or an issue on this earth that can corrupt people faster than love of money and possession can. 
And so over the next few weeks, we're going to really dig into some simple principles about how we have treasure, not just here, but in heaven. And we're going to lean on this book called The Treasure Principle, written by a guy named Randy Alcorn. You can buy it for yourself. It's on Amazon. It's $7. And we're really going to attack perspective and practice in the area of money and possession, and hopefully lay a firm foundation that will serve us well in Christ as holy people so we can understand money and things rightly for our own flourishing in faith, but not just that, for the benefit and the blessing and the impact of the world around us. And so this week, what we really want to do is, as an overview, really root into the understanding of the chaos that happens when we elevate money into a position that it should have never been in. Uh, There's a pastor named Paul David Tripp uh, that does a profound job of breaking down the problems that are created with the love of money in his book, Redeeming Money. We're going to lean on some of that today, uh, but mostly we're going to really look in 1 Timothy here and learn the principles of of the chaos that love of money creates in our lives. And so that's where we're going to be in. This is a letter that Paul writes to his beloved friend, Timothy, and it has a great deal of wealth of information for us. And so let's jump in chapter 6 here. It says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this cravings that that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Pangs is kind of like pain, many pain. And so when we read those words carefully, we begin to get a clue that a love of money is, is connected to things significantly larger than money itself. Consider the profound connections that Paul makes in this provocative little passage. He says in this passage that the love of money is connected to a contentment problem. And he says it right here in the beginning of the verse. He says that godliness with contentment is great gain. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So the love of money is connected to this contentment issue. But the love of money is also connected with an identity problem. An identity problem. In the scripture, it it says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So you were brought in with nothing, and you will leave with nothing. Why is it that we let the things of the world speak to that identity? Why do we give them permission? They weren't created for that. Love of money also is connected to this kind of a problem. It's a fallen world problem, a fallen world problem. In Timothy, Paul writes that they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's a fallen world problem. That doesn't happen if the world is going the way that God designed it to be. And so the love of money is connected to a fallen world problem. And lastly, the love of money is connected to a worship problem. It's connected to a worship problem. In that scripture, it says, for, but those who desire to be rich, desire, desire 
creates worship, right? And so love of money creates a worship problem. And so we can see in this passage alone that the root system of the love of money is deeper and wider in the soil of the human heart than any one of us might think it is. And so today we want to spend some time really uprooting it and looking at it and speaking to it to create awareness. And so we're going to take those problems that are created by the love of money and we're going to look at them in depth. In depth. Uh, the first thing that we said, that the, the love of money is connected to a contentment problem, a contentment problem. And contentment is, is where Paul begins his discussion because the root of the problem of money are found here. Discontentment is the soil that breeds love of money. That's where it grows. And it really comes from a lack of humility that breeds discontentment where money begins to make us think about ourselves a little bit more. We become a little bit more full of ourselves rather than being full of God, pursuing God. It, it, it's about a heart that is captured by self-glory and self-promotion rather than gospel glory and godly pursuit. The love of money creates problems in contentment because it takes our life and it turns it inward when it was supposed to be lived upwards towards love of God and outward towards love of people. It's a lifestyle that is shaped by the unholy trinity of self-love. My wants, my needs, my feelings, right? It is about making my happiness the most important commitment in my life. And it means that every day that we pursue my pleasure, my comfort, and my ease, it's me at the center of everything. And we take God's word and we perverse it to mean things like, I love me and I have a great plan for my life, right? It all becomes about us. And so if we're in the center of our world, that means that God isn't. And if God isn't in the center of our life, then he's not in his proper place. If God is in the center of our life, then at minimum, we understand that we were created to live for him. At minimum, we understand that we need his grace to get what we need in life, to be who we were designed to be, to do the kind of things that the Lord has laid out for us in my life. But if I'm at the center of my world, I become my surrogate, and money becomes that surrogate my replacement savior. When I look at this world by myself, for myself, I'm the center, our creator is on the outside, we begin to look to creation to find our happiness. And so money becomes a savior that delivers all the things that we think bring us joy and satisfaction in life. No longer are we living for God's glory, but, we're own, but for our own self-interest, our own Love. And so it's almost as, as if daily we're praying to money to save us from the want and discomfort that we who live as self-centered find to be the principal evil in this world. And so love of money creates a contentment problem. And so listen, contentment for contentment's sake is not the aim. What does the scripture say? It says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Sure, the reality exists for sure, 100% of the time, 
that less stuff and worrying about money less creates less anxiety in our life. That's a common grace given to us by our Savior for those who don't believe or believe in God. But minimalism is not what God is going after here. He's not wanting us to just sell everything and buy a little house and move to Montana. Why? Because at the center of that, it's still our own self-interest. For complex, less complexity and simplicity. But no, God wants to remove all the corruption in our life by driving in his realities. And what God wants to do to remove discontentment is to drive in godliness. He wants to push in godliness. Within that structure, we find contentment. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians. He says, I, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. In, in, any, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all thing, all this through him who gives me strength. That is godliness driving contentment. And we said earlier that this verse speaks to an identity problem, that identity factors in with the issues of money, that the love of money is connecting us to forgetting who we are, what we were supposed to do in this life, and actually what our life is all about, that we were created for a life after this one, that we were hardwired for forever, hardwired for eternity. And it would make no sense in knowing that to make this life all about us getting our pleasure our possessions, our, having our best experiences, and living in the power of our moment. It is true that, that we came into this world with nothing. And it is true that we will leave this world with nothing. When you exit, the things that you amass will do you nothing. When you came into this world, you were completely dependent. And when you leave, you will assume the same status, completely dependent. If you forget who you are, if you deny what life is about, you will have a very hard time keeping money in its proper place. You'll love it. You'll crave it. You'll do everything that you can to get it and to keep it. You'll envy others who have more than you. And then you begin to judge the goodness of God by his ability to deliver it to you. The love of money sits right in the middle of a life that forgets about eternity, lives selfishly, prioritizes the present, and is more focused on our physical comfort than our eternal destiny. This right now, right here, you only go around once, YOLO mentality is a vat of all kinds of evil. It makes you forget the real source of your joy and your happiness and your completeness, your, 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 your wholeness as a son and daughter adopted by Christ through grace, by faith. It makes you forget, and it makes you then learn to value yourself by how valuable you can make yourself appear and seem to the world. It helps us lose who we are. And this takes place because the love of money is connected to a fallen world problem. This is something else that Paul wants you to know in this verse, that the love of money is a fallen world problem. The love of money is such a significant issue because we live in a world that is not moving and going the way that God designed it to be. 
We said that things are not okay, right? And they won't be until Christ comes back or we meet him in heaven. And so because of that, this place that we live in, you're always going to face constant temptation in your life. Every day that you wake up, there's going to be devious, deceitful temptations that are going to be coming towards your way. That's brokenness, right? Every day, tens of thousands of voices are speaking into your ear to try to move you away from the life that God has called you to live in, to enjoy, and to be free in. Do you know those voices? Every day, they're there. I mean, if we think about this, just think about this. What is money? But a little paper and a little metal. Only in depravity and the brokenness of this world would we take something so neutral and so trivial as paper and metal and make it into something that we would covet with every inch of our lives. Isn't that crazy that we do that? When creation was broken in the garden, we lost the most sustaining, fulfilling whole thing in our life. And ever since that moment, we have been trying to find a way to fill that void, to fill that brokenness. And as a result, paper and metal have become a source of identity, have become a source of worship. Without the presence of God in our life, we will worship just about anything. Because listen, you were hardwired to worship from the beginning. In, in Romans 1, Paul writes, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as, as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The love of money is connected to a worship problem. It's a worship problem. We have fought, fell for a temptation to worship and serve creation rather than worship and serve our creator. It is attaching our identity and our well-being to something in creation. It's asking creation to give us something that only their creator can. And so ultimately, the love of money is about worship. It's about worship. It connects us to the evil of all evils, offering our love and adoration and worship and service to something other than God, to whom it belongs alone, to look to creation, to what we love and worship. And listen, this exchange is really not hard to see. It is not hard to see where we went off on this. You can look, and it's all over. I looked at a study this week uh, of the spending habits of Americans, 
from 1984 to 2014, and there was just some fascinating statistics in that. Uh, it says in that study that the top fifth of earners per capita, just per capita income, the top fifth of earners spend 65% of their income on consumption of luxury goods, things that they really don't need but they want, and only 35% towards the things that are necessary. And the middle class doesn't fare a whole lot better. A report suggests that 50% of the income of the middle class goes towards consumption of luxury items that they really don't need but want, and 50% goes towards the things that are necessary. And even the, the bottom fifth earners were alarming. 40% of their income went to consumption of luxury goods, things that we don't need. 60% went towards necessity. We are acquiring a mountain of things in our life. And not only are we acquiring a mountain of things, we are taking up more space. Do you know the average single-family home has exceeded 23% more space than it did two decades ago? That in this year, there are currently 52,000 self-storage units. That is more than double than it was two centuries ago, or two, two decades ago. And understand this, that, that the average Christian today tithes and tithe means tenth of your produce or earnings. The average Christian tithes at 2.6%. Now put some context into this. During the Great Depression, Christians per capita donated 3.3% of their income. Isn't that fascinating? If you want evidence for God and brokenness in the world, it's right there in those statistics, among other things. It's right there in those statistics, among other things. That void that was left by a whole relationship with God is a vacuum that keeps sucking things in. And we keep looking to the world to fill it. And the amount of things that we are trying to throw into it reflects the, the, the size of our God. Huge. That void is never exhausted. Those statistics connect with the rise of nominalism within our culture, people who profess Christ in name alone, the rise in, in viewing Christianity as some moral therapeutic deism, that it's there to give me principles and morals to live a good life with on earth, and the rise of unbelief. Those statistics are connected with those statistics. Most all of our life's issues, whether you believe this or not, all can be traced back to your understanding of how God fills the void in your life. How he has completely met your needs. And so listen, when we speak about this, don't let this shame you. That is what the enemy wants to do. No one wants to shame people in this, but we have to be aware. We have to be aware of this. The love of money is not just a little thing. It's not just a little thing. It really is a portal to all kinds of evil because it connects foundationally to life-shaping issues like your heart, your contentment, your identity, understanding how you relate to the world, eternity, and how you worship. If we get these issues wrong, then we will never live the kind of lives that God intended for us to live here. And so listen, Paul isn't speaking these words to try to get you guys to just give up your money. 
He's not speaking these words that equates a philosophy that moral or like material things are evil. He's not asking the Christian culture to require poverty. That's not what he's trying to do here. He is trying to draw a definitive line between the love of money and possessions and what true contentment and true identity and true worship looks like. Paul speaks over and over again the will of God that it's okay for us to be ambitious and accomplished, to make a difference in this world and in your jobs. God calls us to be profound employers and employees. Clearly states that we should work hard, but money and possession should never be our driving force in life. Instead, it always has to be the glory of God. God's grace and his mercy and his love That is what pushes us towards loving him well. That's what pushes us towards loving the world that Christ has loved us. And so over the course of the next few weeks, we really want to dig into some really profound principles that are pretty simple. They're not not rocket science, but they're principles that will hopefully guide us in the right direction, that will anchor ourselves rightly in the area of money. Principles that we find in Scripture, in the Bible, that create proper and clear perspective on how we're to use money and things, not just not to develop a disdain for possession and money, but rather to see how we can use them and leverage them for the kingdom of God and his glory and his blessing and the blessing of others around us. And so those principles that we are going to guide ourselves through are, are led by this principle called the treasure principle. And the treasure principle says this. It says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And here's what that means. Anything that we try to hang on to on this world will be lost. We came in with nothing. We will leave with nothing. Do you know what will happen with your stuff? Someday after you're gone, either somebody's going to inherit it, somebody's going to buy it in an auction, or it's going to go in a dumpster. That's what happens with things. You can put it in your casket. It's not going to benefit you any. But the things that we put in the hand of God, the things that we put in God's hand, will be there in eternity with us. If we give instead of keep, if we invest in the eternal things rather than the temporal, we store up treasures in heaven that are far better than the ones that you could gain and achieve here on earth. Because whatever treasure you store up here, right, it's gone. When you're gone, it's gone. But the treasures that we store up in heaven are waiting for us when we meet him in glory someday. And so this verse and this principle doesn't imply that we just kind of give everything away, but rather that we would use that possession and money and leverage it for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, and for the beauty of his name. That we would take the things of this world and do exactly what Christ is doing with us, redeem them. That we would redeem them for his glory and his purposes. And for us to really consider this, for us to have that perspective, take hold in our life, we first have to be aware of the trappings of the love of money. 
they are deep and profound in our life. All kinds of evil, says the word, comes from the love of money. And so listen, maybe it's time that we just speak about the largest elephant in American Christianity, money and possession, and not be afraid of it. Not because it's self-serving, because it's a heart issue. It's a worship issue. It's an identity issue, and it is a chain that we are wearing and living in bondage. And so we want to bring awareness to this because we just want, our desire here at Life is that we would just surrender in humility to the word of God and his design, that we would just seek it and try to align our lives up with it. We believe what it says to be the flourishing for us and our faith. Could we just consider that God wants more here? That there's a better way of living than just for ourselves, to just squander the things that we have, time, money, possessions on this planet. That we become aware that this life was never meant to be about you. It just never was. It's not about you. Even the things that happen to you, they're not about you. It's about who God is. That we would spend our time focusing on the one who made us, the one that defined us, the one that has redeemed us, to fill his purposes in every area of our lives. So I'm going to ask the van to come out here, but I'm just going to implore us to take some time here as we uh, move into worship just to have some reflection in our hearts. Look, nobody is on this stage is trying to point fingers. Uh, that would be hypocrisy, but we are trying to create awareness. We are wanting to move closer Christ and align ourselves with his word. So would we just take a moment as we worship our Father to just check our hearts, to ask, Lord, where am I at with this? And I don't think it's going to take long for us to kind of feel where we're at with that. And that you would ask the Lord to give you wisdom. And understand this, that he's not condemning you. That he would give you graceful eyes, say, why am I doing this, Lord? What about you do I not understand in my life that you've already fulfilled for me? That you would just look at yourself without judgment and say, Lord, I don't want that. Why am I doing that? And let the Lord speak to you. If you need prayer for that, we'd love to pray over you. If you would just have some things in your life that you just need, I just need prayer. Our prayer team is going to be up here. We'd love to pray for you. But let's just stand together and worship our King.